Welcome to the Washington Union Alliance Church Podcast, an archive of our recorded sermons. We're a Christian and Missionary Alliance Church located in Newcastle, Pennsylvania. For more information, go to wuac.org. What do you do when you have to choose to say what is expected of you rather than saying what's true? Have you ever been on the receiving end of an answer that you did not expect? Boss comes into your office and you expect him to say, hey, great job on the presentation this morning. But then he looks at you with a bit of indifference and he says, hey, mediocre job on the presentation this morning. Or on the other hand, you have a boss who gave a presentation and he wants to know your opinion. And you give him an answer that he does not expect. And you say maybe, you know what, I've seen paint dry and that was more exciting and informative than what you just told me. You walk into church one morning, and you're greeted by someone, hey, how you doing? And you respond, I'm doing well, thanks. But if you were quite honest, perhaps it's this. I'm bankrupt spiritually, emotionally, physically. I don't know why I'm here, to be quite honest with you. It's an unexpected answer. What do you do? when you're caught between lying and being embarrassed. On one hand, we're told to completely speak our minds, be completely vulnerable and be be honest and truthful. On the other hand, these are real people with real feelings who have been through life's hills and valleys. And you completely don't want to write these people off as well. What do you do when you're caught between between lying and being embarrassed? And that's where we're going to kind of go today with that thought. And this morning we're in John chapter 20. John 20, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, if you have your Bible. And uh, if your Bible, you can turn there in front of you, page 769 of that Bible in front of you. John 20, maybe you've heard of this guy named before. His name is Thomas. Thomas is a guy in the Bible. His name is, is called Doubting Thomas. And because of his honest look at questioning the person of Jesus, he doubts who Jesus is. And today I want to think about this story perhaps maybe a little bit differently. I love this story. I love Doubting Thomas. I love this story. It's a wonderful story in the scriptures. And as I've come to know this, even through my own kind of study and reading through this, I've just really come to actually love this disciple and really respect him. And while reading through this, it just brings tears to my eyes because it brings about so much about faith, uh, doubt, and the nature of the church and following Christ and being a disciple, following Jesus in the 21st century and so much else. You see, what we have talked about, when, when the death of Jesus happened, when the death of Christ happened, in between this moment of Jesus dying and then resurrecting and then them appearing, we found that those disciples, they had maybe perhaps a lot of what you and I experience today. You see, they had a death of faith, a death of experience, a death of relationships, maybe a death of expectations. And maybe those expectations, those deaths sort of line the thoughts of your heart this morning. Maybe you've experienced the death of faith. Maybe faith has been waned from your life or experience or relationships or expectations in your life have waned. And it's just not what you've gone is what you've hoped for. And for those disciples, when Jesus died, that was much of what they felt like. I mean, the guy that they had followed, the guy that they had courageously followed and just followed religiously for, for the course of, of his time there. I mean, when he died, it was the death of all these things, the death of all these experiences. And maybe you're thinking that. Maybe you're in those pews today thinking about the countless times those expectations in your life have not turned out the way that you had hoped for. 
And maybe all those emotions happened. All those emotions were what it was like to follow Christ when Jesus died, before he appeared to them and resurrected. All those things is what's... And here's the question I want to ask us today, is what's next? And if you're asking this question a couple of weeks after Easter, I'm glad that you're here because we're all asking the what's next with the what's next in this journey. And so as we look at this, we're looking at what happened, what's next after Jesus resurrected and appeared. And so what's next? What's the next step? We're in John 20. And so like he rose, maybe you're like, man, he rose from the dead and Easter happened a couple weeks ago. And it's like, what do I do now? Like what happens with my life? What about everything that's, I, I, you know, Easter happened and what about the, the, the despair I'm experiencing or the doubt I'm experiencing? What about all of this? The doubt that I can't overcome, the things that I just can't wrestle, I'm wrestling through this in my life. The life that I hoped for a few weeks ago and promised God a few weeks ago, it feels like a far distant reality in the sky. Well, I'm glad you're here. What's next? You're in good company because his disciples asked that same thing some 2,000 years ago. You see, the resurrection church, the resurrection is deeply personal and touches ordinary lives with tremendous power. I'm glad if you're here today and if you're doubting, I'm glad you're here. Because the resurrection is deeply personal and touches ordinary lives with tremendous power. And we're going to find that from this story. And we will find that across today's account. We're in John chapter 20, 769 of the Bible in front of you. It's going to be on the screen behind me. And if you are visiting with us, uh, just glad you're here today. We value the preaching and teaching of the scriptures. And I pray that you would find a church that does the same thing. That preaches and teaches from the scriptures faithfully. And so it's be on the screen behind me in 769 of that Bible in front of you. I want to read just verse 19. It's going to set us up for a little bit. John 20 verse 19. It says this, on the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together with the doors locked for what? Fear of the Jewish leaders. Jesus came and stood among them and said what? Peace be with you. So verse, so 19. You've got, the, you've got the church at this point, the entire church at this point, locked in one room. This is following, this is after Jesus has, um, after Jesus, he died, and so they're, they're all locked into this room at one point, and they're locked in fear of the Jewish leaders around them. And we can only speculate as to why that fearful of the Jewish leaders. John really doesn't give us a reason why. Um, maybe they're fearful because it was the Jewish leaders who killed Jesus, and that's pretty reasonable, I would imagine. And um, perhaps they're fearful because the man that they followed maybe isn't who he says he is. And so they're locked in this room of fear of the Jewish leaders who had crucified him. Ethan Linder says this, that they're possibly fearful because they feared the Jewish leaders at the time being right, that Jesus was out to build his own kiosk rather than building the kingdom of God. And their thought process would have been, this guy can't be God. How dare this guy, how dare Jesus respect the name, disrespect the name of God? Who does he think he is? They believe this guy had an agenda, and perhaps the disciples at this point are fearful that they've locked themselves in a room because the man that they followed and said some things and did some things cannot be backed up without being raised from the dead. And all of the Christian faith hangs in the balance at this point. And we're told that Jesus stood among them. Did you notice that? He, they're, they're in a locked room, and Jesus came in and stood among them. We're not really told how he does that. He just gets into this locked room. So that's a sermon in and of itself. How does Jesus come into a locked room and stand there? But anyway, um, that's a sermon all by itself, that Jesus isn't confined by boundaries. Um, that's good to know, too. Um, let's continue on. Verse 20 says this. 
After he, after he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. And the disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Again, Jesus said what? What's the word? Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone's sins, their sins are forgiven. And if you don't forgive them, they are not forgiven. The disciples are fearful. And he, Jesus knows that. And he also does the same thing to Mary Magdalene and the other gospel accounts. Do not be afraid. Jesus says, peace be with you. Do you notice that? He knows what we need even before we ask or say anything. Notice that Jesus just simply shows him his nail holes in his side and without even asking for him to see it, for them to see it. He just shows them. He knows their trouble. He knows their deepest hurts. He knows what we need before we even say a word. He knows they're afraid, and he knows that he is peace. He himself is our peace in this chaotic and fear-filled, crisis-ridden world church. In verse 20, the, the grace of the Lord's return to this, this, this frightened disciples in verse 20. His greeting of peace to them, and he now offers his hands and his side. They're all grace-filled and joy, <laughs> joyful. <clears throat> the overwhelming fact is that Jesus the dead Jesus is now alive. And all these disciples that have experienced of what we've been reading is true. We can imagine the rush, the thrill, the joy, the ecstasy of this like world-changing encounter of what happens here, of those first disciples when they see their risen Christ. That all of what they had followed, all the things that they had followed those last several years takes on this new dimension. And we are, we are then reading this as, we are then reading this to say, this really happened. And this is fact. There was one person who said, if the resurrection of Jesus actually happened, if the resurrection of Jesus actually happened, then nothing really matters. If the resurrection of Jesus did not actually happen, then nothing else really matters. And that's what he says to the disciples in this room at this one point. But then the mood shifts here. And the disciples, are, they're going crazy. They're joyful and they're excited. And Jesus breathes in them the Holy Spirit, new life. And it's amazing until the next few verses, go like this, 24. Now Thomas, also known as Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord, okay? But then he said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where his nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not what? Believe. And Thomas speaks up, and we're not too sure why Thomas wasn't around with other disciples in the community of faith at this point in time, and we have no idea where he went. Maybe he was out getting groceries. Uh, maybe he was making pierogies. I don't know if what he was doing, or maybe he was watching the Pirates sell all their players. I don't know. Um, um, not really too sure why, where he was at that point. He maybe was at a Pirates game. He probably wasn't. He probably wouldn't give them any money. We aren't too sure why, but Thomas wasn't there at this point in time. We don't know why Thomas wasn't there. I don't know where he went. And you can almost hear the disciples at this point come to Thomas with exuberance. We've seen the Lord, Tom. Come on. He's real. And behind this question, we can always ask this, church. It can kind of be posed like this. Tom, don't you believe too? I mean, he can go two ways with this. Thomas hasn't seen Jesus yet. He wasn't there in the room with the disciples. He goes the honest route. On one hand, he hasn't seen Jesus yet. Most of his family and his friends would have probably said the, the southern way of like, bless your heart, 
no, kind of thing. Which was that southern way of, you guys know what that means, uh, your, bless your heart kind of thing. He goes the honest route. He's confronted with a choice. Should we say what's expected or say what's true? In verse 26, a week later, a week later goes by, his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you, coming through locked doors. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here, see my hands, reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and what? Believe. And Thomas said to him, my Lord and my God. And Thomas, Thomas asked this question, church, that we crave. Did it really happen? Is Jesus actually who he says he is? I mean, you've got the, you've got the entire church locked up in a room at one point, at this point. You've got the church locked up in the room and the first thing they wonder did it really happen? And Jesus knows Thomas wants to see his wounds. And he wants physical evidence that Jesus is actually who he says he is. It's Thomas who's a disciple, he's a follower. One of the hand-picked 12 disciples of Jesus who doubts. Now think about that for a second. God in Christ hand-picks somebody who doubts. And it's, in fact, it's as close as you can get as a disciple at this point. As close as you can get to Jesus. In the scriptures, in the story we find ourselves, where sometimes we look for ourselves as we read scripture, and we ought to. The people that Jesus hangs out with, the people that he interacts with and heals, we wonder if our name, your name, my name, will be included in the good news. And that's all Jesus came for, and that's his entire testimony, church, of all across his ministry, that he came to bring good news. So am I included in this or not? Maybe you're asking this question. Maybe why hasn't he shown up to me yet? Why hasn't he shown up to me? Here's where it turns. Maybe Thomas is just a placeholder for your name. Maybe you believed long ago as a child. You're trying to get there. You're trying to get to that point, and Maybe you haven't gotten there yet. Maybe you're wondering, man, been to church, Sunday school, whole nine yards. There are other people who believe in this around you, and you're struggling a bit. Or maybe you're a churchgoer in the pews, sitting there, wondering and asking and questioning and seeking, truly finding out whether this really happened or not. The question that all of us as disciples, did this really happen, is something that we ought to be extremely thankful for. Ought to be extremely, extremely thankful for this. Why? Because Jesus never turns away an honest seeker. Faith and doubt aren't pitted against each other. Doubt and unbelief and straight-out unbelieving are two completely different things. And if you doubt, you are a human being. If you doubt, you're searching for something. And what we find here is that Jesus is honoring honest doubt. William Barker says this about doubt and unbelief. Doubt is looking for the light. Unbelief, straight-out unbelieving, is relishing the darkness. Doubt is honesty. Unbelief is obstinacy. Doubt is weighing the evidence. Unbelief is playing with evasions. I mean, what kind of God would, would have this kind of compassion for those who doubt? <laughs> I mean, one, one person said he, in, in one translation says that he focused his attention toward Thomas in verse 27. And Thomas goes the route that speaks to many of us. I'm not going to believe this Jesus guy until I actually see him, until I can physically put my hands into his side. 
And Jesus has done some amazing things with Thomas. He has conquered death. He has just descended into hell, defeated the enemy. He's not out mingling with the spiritually serious Pharisees or mingling with the Jews. He's inviting those who doubt into a relationship. He didn't announce over a megaphone, look at me, I'm Jesus, who you all doubted from the beginning. But he touches people very personally. In fact, the people who doubted Jesus are all over the Bible. But what makes Thomas different from the rest of them? Let me just say this. Just imagine with me, church, that Jesus turns his attention to you. With all your fears and doubts and missteps and back turns and sins, he invites you to come and see him. He invites you to come and see. We don't have any canon photographs or snapshots of Jesus on the cross there aren't any first century photographs of Jesus there. Or there's no selfies of Jesus with the nails in his hands or the pierce in his side or any pictures of those first century photographs present. And we take it by faith. And we take the scriptures to believe what they actually say is true about Jesus. But just imagine with me, church, this. Let's just imagine with me this. Imagine with me you're sitting with Jesus for a minute. And you're sitting down with Jesus. You're in the midst of a room. And Jesus knows your questions. He knows your deepest questions regarding the existence of life. And if there is a good God out there, and you and Jesus meet eye to eye and you have a conversation. And his eyes are gentle, but his face brims with hope. You look in his eyes with a look of compassion. And you know for certain that those eyes have seen men whip him with enormous amounts of force. And his eyes have seen, have seen him, human beings, place him on two wooden beams on the cross and bloodied and beaten to the point of death. And his eyes have gazed into the eyes of Mary who wiped his feet with her hair. His hands have been broken, has broken bread in half. And he shared a part of himself with you. He's conversed with a Samaritan woman, the lowly, the lost, the forgotten, a social outcast of that day, subject of town gossip, and embraced her. Pray, place yourself there for just a minute. And while Jesus' shoulders get lodged under the dry and depressed wood, Jesus looks at the soldiers. Some are laughing and some are angry. Some spit in Jesus' face and he looks at them and whispers to his father, forgive. And Jesus has just come to earth and he nestled into a manger, newborn infant, lives a life of service, humility, dies for you and me. Marked all that humility, marked all of his time and servanthood, marked all of his time here on earth. You see, Jesus does not use a loudspeaker to proclaim his authority as the King of kings and Lord of lords. He encounters people like Mary and like Thomas, like many people in our anxieties, in our doubts. And he touches them. Who we really are, the people that we are actually are right now. And if Jesus did not believe Thomas would change, he wouldn't have appeared to him. Thomas is a part of the 12 and a part of the community of faith at that point, and he doubts which means that God invites his, uh, himself and extends himself to those who doubt. And Scripture says, tells us that those who have faith see the Lord for who, he really, for who he is, but also to those who doubt are invited to touch him. And Jesus totally flips that norm of the disciples' way of thinking and invites, them, invites those who doubt to touch him. And church, we must champion those who doubt. The church should also be for those kinds of folks as well. Thomas is a disciple of Christ who doubts. He's a part of the community of faith. And what I mean is this, that church in the church community is not simply for those who have seen, but for also the community who have not yet seen yet. 
For the lost who have not seen him, the church is also for those as well. And the purpose of the church is also for those who doubt. My challenge to you is this. If you're doubting, if you doubt, if you have questions, bring them out into the open. I know for some it's the community of faith. Maybe you're surrounded by those kind. Maybe it can be feel or feel intimidating. But Thomas, Thomas wasn't in that room at that point, and he asked the honest questions. And if you're this morning in that place, if your name is in the midst of Thomas's name, a placeholder there, I'd encourage you to begin to hang out with people in places where Jesus shows up. I mean, Jesus himself says, seek and you shall find. And Jesus was, is with his disciples in the faith community at this point. And it's where he asks this question, his doubting question. And church, we must welcome that and must welcome doubt. It's not like welcome those who doubt, but willing to sit, even to sit with those who doubt, to answer questions, go to the scriptures together. We've all been Thomas at one point or another. And Thomas is the one to have the courage to speak up at this point of all the others at this point. It's Paul Tripp who says that the resurrection church is your guarantee that God will do whatever is necessary to secure your redemption. God will take us up out of our shame and our guilt and certain death, pull us up out of the weight of sin and darkness and bring us to new life in Jesus Christ. You see, even faith and reason, these are just some things I just want to talk about this for just a minute, spend a minute to talk about, about this. Faith and reason shouldn't be pit, pitted against each other. We, we have a reasonable faith. And oftentimes the evidence of that faith, it might be helpful for you. That's actually based on whether our faith is actually based on actual historical events. So this is a helpful book for me. Hopefully it's helpful for you. Tim Keller's book, The Reason for God, is excellent. And he outlines these things just, just as an outline. This is not exhaustive, but this is just a few things that he says. He says this, that the timing is too early for the Gospels to be legends. The Gospels are the accounts of Jesus' life, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. So what does he mean? The timing is too early for them to be legends. The New Testament books were all written about 40 to 60 years after Jesus' death, very early on because those hundreds of eyewitnesses were dying off. Many of the eyewitnesses were named in the New Testament. I mean, if you think about it just for a minute, if you can't write a document that's going to be read publicly, if there really, if there really were eyewitnesses whose testimony agreed and who confirmed what the author had said. Well, the timing of the, early, of the Gospels is too early to be legends. Number, secondly, he says this, that the content is far too counterproductive for the Gospels to be legends. And if this story is all just, if it's all just made up or if it's an invention, why would you invent some of these things as a part of the story of what God had done in Christ? I mean, some of this is like, why would you make some of this up? I mean, for the first century, women as eyewitnesses, that's the first eyewitnesses' testimony, would they were had such a low status of that day unfortunately that their testimony wasn't admissible in a law of court why would anyone make up the fact that the disciples are jealous and slow-witted and and petty at times and presented oftentimes as cowardly and who actively failed their master why would you make that stuff up thirdly he says this that the literary form of the Gospels is too detailed to be legend. So you have precise details about the time of day. You've got things about Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John about the time of day, about things that happened that were very specific, direct numbers of fish, detailed accounts of how Jesus healed people in that day, what homes he was in, 
where he was geographically, and you have all those things at, at this point um, to, to help us in detail of what the gospel accounts tell us about Jesus' life. All of these are so helpful in examining whether Christianity is really true. We have confidence that Jesus really did exist and that our faith is certain. He was a real person, real followers, lived a very real public life. So what about faith? How does faith come into all this? Scripture calls upon us that we are to exercise faith and faith and faith. <laughs> At the end of the day, when the lights go out, the evening fades and everything else in between. Jesus showing us his wounds sets him apart, and Jesus is inviting Thomas to believe in the person of Jesus marked by self-sacrificial love. I don't know about you, but I would want to follow somebody. I would want to believe in somebody and place my faith in somebody who had died on a cross, who had been placed, those, those nails had been placed in his hands and his feet, and that's the kind of person that I would want to follow and believe in and trust in the rest of my life. And he's saying, and Thomas is inviting his wounds to touch him. By, Tom, by Jesus showing Thomas his wounds and inviting him to touch them, he's saying, believe based on the wounds which are marked for your redemption, church. It's significant that Jesus shows them to the disciples. By showing the disciples his scars, isn't it? It's interesting. He shows them his scars. It's the wounds of Jesus that break the spell of disbelief. And it's oftentimes those scars of the flesh <laughs> that which this, in which Jesus we can identify the most. The scars remind us that Jesus is not unfamiliar with pain or shame or abandonment with agony. He knows the pain that you and I go through, church. He knows the pain that you and I, honestly, that we enter into sometimes. And he knows the pain and he understands our pain. He knows the pain we go through, and he chose that for you and I on our behalf. He knows the pain that you and I go through, the hills and valleys. But you can trust him, church, and you can trust him. And it's in those scars he purchased salvation and forgiveness for us. I don't know about you, but if I'm going to follow and believe somebody, I'm going to follow the one who had gone through immense amount of suffering for me, had those nails go through his hands and feet, and then follow the one who was crucified for our transgressions. And in verse 29, it says this. Verse 29. Then Jesus told him, Blessed you who have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Do you notice that? Blessed are you who have seen me, you've believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believed. And church, he's talking to you and I. Blessed are we. Blessed. He calls us blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Believing is seeing, church. Believing is seeing. Seeing is not necessarily believing, but believing is seeing. And their believing was more blessed than Thomas's seeing. Because those saints on their eye of faith, their eyes of faith, more than the eyes in their heads. And faith seeing in this age results in more joy than I seeing. Our joy than I seeing. And Peter, he's a fellow eyewitness with Thomas. He writes this in his first Peter. He says this, though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an expressible and glorious what? Joy for you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. 
Faith sees a reality beyond what eyes can see, a reality that God reveals to us, which is more important, in fact, more real than what we can see with our physical eyes. And that's from Hebrews 11.1. Faith is the assurance of what the things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen. So if you're kind of, if you're, if this is all kind of like, kind of a, a maybe, you kind of want to walk through this and kind of want to start to kind of piece this all together, I would love to talk to you and I'd love to pray with you um, as we kind of walk through this together. And uh, as we, you know, I'd love to know if you know, if this is something you'd like to walk through with faith. Um, it's the most important decision you could ever make is to walk with Jesus and to believe in him and to believe in him and life eternal. These are just kind of some thoughts I had. Just a few things. This is kind of, you're struggling. If you're like kind of walking through this and maybe you're just kind of like limping through, kind of like walking through life, kind of maybe just, maybe you just have a lot of questions. I would say, firstly, I'd love to talk to you, but be in Christian community. What do I mean? Be in Christian community. Grab somebody in Christian community to pray with you, to walk with you, to invite you into some of these questions. Be in that community together. Be in those circles. Um, be in those, in those places with Christian community. This is important. The body of Christ is important. Gathering together is important on Sundays. And so be in Christian community together. Um, the Holy Spirit's at work in somebody's life. And let's always remember the Holy Spirit to do the heavy lifting in someone's life. And we're going to pray that even as we, even for our own personal lives, we pray that the Holy Spirit would reveal to us, open our eyes, and maybe for the eyes of others that we are trying, maybe we're praying for, or that we're hoping that the eyes of faith would be open for them as well. The Holy Spirit does that. It does that work. The Word of God is our lamp and our light, as Psalm 119, 105 reminds us. The Word of God is our lamp and our light, and this Word is living and active. It's true, and it speaks to us, and it's God's Word to us in this moment. And the Word of God is our lamp and our light. And as Matthew 7 reminds us, and as Jesus reminds us, to ask and to seek and to knock, church. Ask, seek, and knock. Um, continue to ask and seek and to knock, and you shall find him. Amen? Amen, church. Um, team, if you'll come up, we're going to sing this song together as we pray. As we go to the Lord together in prayer.